So I'm going to try to keep this a little shorter than I usually do. You can go ahead and say amen to that already. Um, so that we can actually spend a little more time than we usually do at the Lord's table. Um, it is not universally agreed that churches need to or should do this every week, but it's been a longstanding practice here. I am a big fan of it. I love doing it every week. If a church doesn't do it every week, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that they're doing something wrong, but in general, we should do this often, I think. And so today, what I want to do, like in, in a very real sense, my only goal is that today for sure, but also moving forward, that when we do this each week, that you would have a little more of an understanding of what exactly are we doing. And so just to frame it, and, and this whole series is about the wilderness, um, a couple of books on my shelf that I thought about this week. One is from one of the most famous American short story writers of the 20th century, Raymond Carver, and one of his famous collections of short stories is what we talk about when we talk about love. And another one, more recent, by a Japanese-American named Haruki Murakami called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And you can hear the commonality in the title. And so here's kind of what I want us to ask. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, what are we talking about? When we do this, what are we doing? That's kind of the single question that I want us to answer and to think about to connect to the last week. And if you have Mark 6 open, I encourage you to turn there and to keep it open for a minute. Last week, we, uh, we finished two weeks that are two of the odder weeks I've ever preached before, where we talked about Satan and we talked about angels. That's not going to be a regular topic, but they're both there in the wilderness as an aspect of God's grace, as an aspect of danger. And one thing I mentioned last week that's very easy to miss in Psalm 78, the manna is referred to as the bread of angels. Something that God provided for his people in their journey through the wilderness, through the ministry and the, um, the, the service of angels. And one of the big themes in this, in this season, in this uh, series, is that we are always in the wilderness, metaphorically, typologically, whatever you want to call it, that we're never still in Egypt as slaves to sin and death, and yet we're never in the promised land yet. And yet, even though the Christian life in the wilderness is hard and is challenging and it's difficult, and it's long, it's perilous, there's danger. One of the, a, a line that I encourage you to memorize, this one line in Jeremiah 31, is that Israel found grace in the wilderness. That those who were in the wilderness found grace. And when you read the story of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, one of the primary forms of grace to them was the manna from heaven and the water from the rock. And I've mentioned it a number of times, and now we're finally going to do it today, is the sacraments, what Christians have often called this, the Lord's table and baptism, don't come out of nowhere once Jesus comes on the scene, but they are clearly based on the Exodus story and the wilderness story. That when we baptize someone as a new believer, whatever you think about baptism, whether you sprinkle water, whether you immerse them, is it, it, it fulfills this long pattern in scripture that God saves his people through water. Water. That just like Israel went through the water as slaves and came up through the water on the other side free, so Christians are baptized in water to signify that their exodus has happened. If you are a Christian, the exodus has already happened for you. You have already been liberated. You've already been set free, which is one of the reasons that almost all Christians throughout history agree baptism is something you only do once. If you get baptized last week and then you screw up this week and you feel like I probably lost my salvation, I should get baptized again next week, we're going to say, Nope, that's, that's not what baptism is. Baptism is something that happens once decisively at the beginning of the Christian life, but the Lord's table happens regularly, just like manna and water from the rock was given regularly to the people throughout the wilderness. We're there in the Heidelberg Catechism right now, too, thinking about the sacraments. And so what I want us to think about is what is this about? What does it point to? Um, C.S. Lewis uses a great 
image in one of his essays talking about the difference between human beings and animals, where he says, if you have a dog, I love dogs, if you have a dog and you point, the dog doesn't follow the pointing. It just kind of like wags his tail and stares at you. But if you point to a human being, they kind of look along that the human beings ha have this ability to understand that like some things point to other things. And almost all Christians agree this points to something and the question becomes, what does it point to? There are many names Christians give this, overlapping, not necessarily exclusive of each other. Some Christian traditions call this the Eucharist. Um, Grace Jun read our second passage, and grace in English is the translation of a Greek word, charis, which is also sometimes a girl's name. And you can hear it, you charis is good grace. Eucharist is when Jesus blesses the bread and gives thanks for it, that to put it this way, and I'll end in a few minutes giving examples of this, one of the things we're doing when we take this, if we know what we're doing, is we're saying thank you, is that this is the Eucharist. Probably the thing that stands out the most when you remember Israel's sinfulness in the wilderness is as the manna came down, what was their usual reaction? And you saw it there in John 6 too, they grumbled. Grumbling and gratitude are opposite attitudes. And in response to this, we don't grumble, we have gratitude and we say thank you. So the Eucharist is one way to talk about it. Another phrase that, or a word that Christians often use for this is communion, which refers to kind of having fellowship with someone. It's a relational thing that there's a sense that when we eat this, we are eating it with Jesus and with one another, that this is not, if you've ever done this, I do this a lot as an introvert. If I have a lunch hour, I'll pull out my phone and I'll read sports updates on ESPN and I'm just hanging out by myself. That's not what this meal is. And one of the dangers when we pass out the elements and everybody kind of bows their head and does their own thing is there can be a sense of, I'm just doing this as a private individual. But this is a meal we do together in communion with Christ, the risen Christ with one another. Another phrase is that it's the Lord's table or it's the Lord's supper. It's a meal. Um, probably most controversially is in uh, Catholicism, this is called the mass. Um, Protestants almost always kind of abstain from using that language, but I, I think it's right because in Catholicism it's understood that this is actually itself a moment of sacrifice, which Protestants think, um, I think rightly, undermines the once-for-allness of Jesus's sacrifice, but there's lots of phrases that Christians use for this. What I want us to do is look at some of the most, I think, important passages in the New Testament on this, and then what we're going to do at the end of our time today is we're actually going to give you probably a good five minutes once you get the elements to just meditate, to just say thank you, to just respond, to just think about what you've heard. And maybe we'll do that more often in the future, give a little time. I often feel that when we get to the end of the service and we do this, we're often rushing and we don't have a whole lot of time. And so today we wanna give some time to really participate in this and to do it meaningfully in faith. And so let's look at Mark 6, which is the feeding of the 5,000. Grace read from verses 30 down to 52. We're gonna look at that. This will be our main passage we look at, although I'll refer to some of the others. A couple of things that are important to know about this. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, other than the resurrection. Should mention that one too. Resurrection is there in all four Gospels. And so it is significant in a way that seems to be central beyond many other miracles. And yet, in Mark's version, it's also there in John 6. And what John does with it is very different than what Mark does with it, even though it's the same story of this big crowd out in a desolate place, and Jesus kind of miraculously redistributes and multiplies the provision so that they are able to eat. We need to notice a couple of things. The first 
is that at least in the ESV, which we tend to read up here, three times at the beginning of Mark 6, we're told where this moment happened. And it's much more significant than I think we usually pick up on. You can see in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. For some reason, English translate that as desolate place. It's just one word in Greek, verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves and then down in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Mark broadcasts this very, very repetitively, very explicitly. This happened in a desolate place. If you know anything about the four gospels, you know Mark is the shortest of the four gospels. And so when Mark wastes words repeating something, it's not because he's prone to repetition. He is prone to brevity. And so the most important thing is for you to know that desolate place here is translating one Greek word, wilderness. That this takes place in the wilderness. It's the same word that was used of Jesus in the 40 days in the wilderness or the desert at the beginning of his ministry with Satan. The same word that you, Mark wants you to hear the overtones of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness. John makes that very explicit in John 6 because he makes it all about your father's received manna in the wilderness. So the first thing I want you to know is that it takes place in the wilderness. It's, uh, it's also worth paying attention to later on, if you go back and look at this, that right before the story, we didn't read this, that John the Baptist in chapter six, verses 14 through 29 is executed and his head is chopped off by the enemies of God's kingdom. And then right after this, at the beginning of chapter seven, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders that are constantly opposing Jesus come and they start a fight with him. And so maybe you'll begin to hear the connections already, but I want you to notice that when they're in the wilderness, that's already a dangerous scenario. There's a huge crowd, they are hungry, they are thirsty, and there is no quick way back to where there's provision. But also I want you to notice that on both sides, there's enemies, that they're surrounded by enemies in the wilderness and in great need. Last thing I want you to notice, and then we'll start looking at what's going on here, is that following the feeding of the 5,000, and most of the gospels have this order, there's the scene of Jesus, or sorry, the disciples are on the boat, and there's a storm, and they freak out. And only Mark does this. Only Mark explicitly connects the two stories. There's not a whole lot that's in parallel between these two stories. You could say that Jesus exerts his authority over nature in both stories. That's true. You could say that there is danger and need, and Jesus provides and brings safety and provision for his people in both stories. That's true. But the feeding of the 5,000 is one thing. The walking on the water, that's another thing. But notice at the end, in verse 51 of chapter 6, Jesus got into the boat with them after they freaked out panicked with anxiety and fear and the wind has now ceased and they were utterly astounded and mark tells us why they didn't trust jesus why they feared why they panicked because they did not understand what he had done with the loaves but their hearts were hardened somehow their failure to understand what was actually going on in the feeding of the five thousand is connected to their failure to trust jesus when the storm is raging on the boat mark links these two stories Okay, looking at the story itself, and and some of you have heard me do this before, maybe you've noticed it yourself. Um, I actually usually like to do this more in like a um, interactive Bible study setting, but for today, I'm just going to walk through it real quickly. The thing that really grabbed me years ago when I first saw this was verse 39. Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. I remember thinking, Mark is the shortest of the gospels. And again, he doesn't waste words. And if there is anything 
in the entire universe that God has created that you do not need to be told what the color of it is. I think grass is a good option. Like, oh, oh, good. Because I was thinking maybe it was hot pink. I was thinking that like maybe it was neon orange. Good to know that the grass was green. Not only is Mark really short, Mark only mentions two other colors in his 16 chapters. And they are both really significant. He mentions that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus's clothes turn so white beyond anything that you could ever do through human laundering. And he mentions that when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, that they put a purple robe on him, along with the crown of thorns and along with the scepter, indicating royalty, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Mark, every other time, and it's only twice, he mentions the color, it is fraught with significance. And so we sang a couple of songs about this, and it was our first reading that Darren gave. I think Mark is telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's put it this way first, that when Mark tells this story, he wants us to both look backwards to something that happened long ago, and he also wants us to look forward to something that hasn't happened yet. That this story, to understand it rightly, you need to look backwards and you need to look forward. And if you heard Psalm 23, and notice that in verse 34, Jesus went ashore. He saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So here's a scene where a bunch of sheep are lost and they are hungry. And a shepherd leads them to sit down in green grass. This is Psalm 23. What I want you to notice is that Mark tells the feeding of the 5,000 as the fulfillment of Psalm 23. Have you ever wondered why, if Jesus is so able to miraculously multiply the provisions here, the bread and the loaves, the, the bread, the loaves, the fish, why do all of the gospels make such a big deal that there was a lot left over? And specifically, I want you to notice that in verse 42, they all ate and they were satisfied. Because that's lining up with a couple of things that Psalm 23 says. Psalm 23 says, the good shepherd who leads you in paths of righteousness. Here's Jesus. He's teaching them in paths of righteousness. He's causing them to sit down in the green grass. The Psalm 23 makes a couple of affirmations. I shall not want. I shall not lack. Nobody in this scenario walks away with an empty stomach or with thirst or with any basic need unmet. But Psalm 23 doesn't just claim that I will not lack. It also claims that my cup overflows. I have more than I need. And so there is way more than this crowd needs, and it is left over afterwards. He will prepare a table for me. That's what this is. It's a meal. He will prepare a table for me in a place of danger, the valley of shadow of death, the wilderness, and in the presence of my enemies. And Jesus and his disciples are in the presence of their enemies in this moment. John the Baptist has just had his head cut off by Herod. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are about to start plotting on the other side of this. They are in the presence of their enemies and Jesus prepares a table for them. And so it's pretty obvious once you see it that Mark is telling this story as the fulfillment of the good shepherd has arrived. The good shepherd who provides for his sheep in the way that Psalm 23 promises, that was pointing to Jesus and he has arrived. Now, right after this, and we could spend so much more time on this, but for the sake of time, let's move on. Notice that right after this, there is, after Jesus has met their needs, after he has shown his faithfulness, after he has shown that he will care for them, there's a different kind of danger. They're on a boat, and there's a storm, and they freak out. And Jesus rebukes them for freaking out, and he says, didn't you understand what I just did in the feeding of the 5,000? What's the connection there? You could say it's something as broad as, if you can trust them to take care of you there, 
you should trust them to take care of you over here. That's true, but I think there's something more specific there. In Psalm 23, a couple of things didn't come up in the feeding of the 5,000. One is, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Jesus appears and he says, I'm here. Do not be afraid. And what's the one thing in Psalm 23 that the good shepherd does that didn't have any kind of parallel in the feeding of the 5,000? He leads me beside still waters. Don't you know that I'm going to still the waters? Don't you know that I'm with you and you don't need to be afraid? Do you understand who I am is what this story is all about. And so this story, the feeding of the 5,000, encourages us to look back and to see it as fraught with the significance of the good shepherd who provides for his sheep as they wander through the wilderness, guiding them, guarding them, feeding them, nourishing them. This is what Jesus is for us. Now, on the other hand, if you want to, in a second, turn to John 6, keep your finger here one more second. John is um, so different from the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other in many ways, even though there's some differences there. And John just comes out of left field and it is totally different. The early church often liked to call the gospel of John the spiritual gospel, which is a great phrase. It makes it sound like really cool. Many, many Christians would probably say that the gospel of John is my favorite book in the Bible. Here's my alternative parallel, complementary to that. Here's my, my way of kind of naming what the gospel of John is. You know, if you go to like a Barnes and Noble, you go to like amazon.com and there's this whole genre of books like accounting for dummies and like plumbing for dummies and running for dummies. This is what the gospel of John is, is Jesus for dummies. That's what the gospel of John is. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often mysterious about and a lot of symbolism, John just takes a hammer out, hits you on the head and says, this is what it means. And so in the gospel of Mark, you have to read between the lines to figure out a lot of the imagery and John just gives it to you on a plate. And so I want you to notice that not only does the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark, as well as in all these gospels, point backwards to Psalm 23, I want you to notice that it also points forward. And to do that, I want you to notice, and you don't need to turn there yet, um, but in the gospel of John, Jesus actually rebukes the crowds in a way that he doesn't in the gospel of Mark. And he says to them, you are seeking after me, not because you saw a sign, but because your bellies are filled. You're just hoping I give you another meal tomorrow. That's why you're still following me. And a sign is something that points to something else. That Jesus is saying, what this moment really is, is a sign. And you just like that you got a free meal. And that's all the significance it has to you. And if I stop giving you a meal tomorrow, you're going to stop following me. And he rebukes the crowds for that. I want you to notice that in chapter uh, six of Mark, that there is, and this is in all the Gospels, and the early church noticed this from the very beginning. I want you to listen to this in verse 41, and you should probably, maybe you've noticed it before, but you should almost certainly right away pick up on the, the resonances here. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. There are four verbs there. And those four verbs will show up one other time in the Gospel of Mark, and they will show up in that exact order. Jesus took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread. And he will say that exact thing one more time on the final night of his life at the Last Supper. That Psalm 23, also, sorry, Mark 6, not only points back to Psalm 23, it also points forward 
to the Last Supper, which itself is about Jesus's death and resurrection. And so Mark 6 makes the basic claim, Jesus is the good shepherd who will provide everything his sheep need so that they don't perish, so that they are safe, so they're protected, so they're fed. But it raises the question, how does he do that? And if you just read this as if it's a literal story, and I'm not saying it didn't happen, but if you just read it not as a sign that points to something else, but it's something like, oh, when I'm, when I'm hungry, when my belly growls, Jesus miraculously provides what I want, you are going to profoundly misunderstand what following Jesus is about. But if you see that there's a claim here that what we most desperately need, Jesus gives us, then you see that this points forward to the moment that Jesus, his body was broken for us and his blood was poured out for us. This is how Jesus cares for us as the good shepherd, which is exactly what he says in the gospel of John, not in the passage we read, but a few chapters later in John 10, how do you know the good shepherd from other shepherds that are not good? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what they need. And so let's turn to John six real quick. And we'll think about what's going on with the Lord's supper. I want you to notice that in John 6, hopefully you heard it, all kinds of allusions to the wilderness story, manna in the wilderness, but Jesus also saying, Moses didn't give you the manna. And they're like, really? Like Moses did give us the manna. No, God gave it and it's bread from heaven. And it ultimately points to Jesus who has come down from heaven to be the bread of life, to be the bread of heaven. Remember, I forget in what context, at some point in the last month with a couple of people outside of our Sunday service, we were talking about this, how in the early church, two of the ways that the early Christians were often misunderstood by the pagan Romans and Greeks around them is one is they were often understood to be incestuous. And the reason that was there is because all these people who were not biologically related to each other kept calling each other brother and sister and kept talking about how much they love each other. And so they were like, oh, I guess this is like an incestuous group. I guess this is like an incest cult. And that was actually regularly there in the literature of the reaction of the early Romans. The other one, the other big misunderstanding is that there were cannibals because they kept talking about you need to eat the flesh of the son of God and you need to drink his blood or else you will not have life. And that comes from John 6. And it's a reference to this moment that we partake in the true provision that God has given us in Jesus. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, we've seen it over and over and over again in this series that Paul points out the comparison. Israel in the wilderness, they had the same spiritual drink we do. They had the same spiritual food that we do. And the rock that followed them was Christ. This is what those moments in the wilderness pointed to. They point to Jesus's death and resurrection. And so what I want to do in the last couple of minutes is just step back and say, so what exactly is this? How does this work? How does this meet our needs how does this connect to Jesus's death and resurrection? And, and maybe most practically is there's not only one way that you should receive these. I actually would encourage you that not just today, but in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come, to have kind of a, a variety of things that as you receive this, that you're thinking about, that you're meditating on, that you're responding with, I want you to kind of diversify your portfolio a bit on the Lord's table. I just, I so vividly remember getting these and being like, am I just supposed to like, confess how terrible a sinner I am. And yeah, you are, but there's so much more than just that. If you remember, I've been arguing in the series that grace comes to God's people in the wilderness in three main ways, in terms of God's presence, God's provision, and in terms of God's formation of his people. That grace is there in the wilderness because God is with them. He doesn't say, I got to Egypt, 
I'm going ahead to the promised land. See you when you get there. 40 years later, God is with them in the wilderness all along the way. God provides for their needs daily in the wilderness, protecting them, feeding them, giving them drink. And, and it's probably the aspect of grace that we most struggle to associate with grace is God tests his people, not because he doesn't know what's in their heart, but in order to shape them into being the people they need to be to inhabit the promised land well. And so I want us to consider that at the Lord's table, it is God, it is grace in the sense that this is a way that God's presence is communicated to us. This is God's provision given to us. And if you receive this week after week, year after year in faith, this will actually be central to your being formed into the image of Jesus. This is a formative practice for Christians. When we do this, if we are not wasting our time, if we're doing it rightly, this will actually become a meal that actually forms us into a certain kind of people. And so let's look at those three real quick. Presence, provision, formation. If you know anything about the debates that Christians have had with each, other, uh, with each other about this over the years, and maybe at some point, maybe a Wednesday night, maybe a sermon discussion after a Sunday service in the next couple of weeks, maybe we'll do a Q&A about this if you want. But in the Catholic tradition, what happens here is known as transubstantiation, that this literally, physically turns into Jesus's body and Jesus's blood. The early Protestants rejected that for two reasons. One is that Jesus's body is broken and his blood is poured out only once, once for all, never again. And so that's not what this moment is. And two, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, get rid of his body and float off to heaven as a soul. He rose into heaven with his body and he sat down at the right hand of God. So when we talk about the body of Christ, this is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is seated at the right hand of God right now. This is the body of Christ in the sense that it points to it, that it joins us to it, but this does not physically become something other than bread and wine. The Lutheran view, which even Lutherans tend not to hold anymore, which is good because it's like a hopelessly mixed view, was consubstantiation, which is that physically it doesn't become anything, but spiritually it actually does become the elements, and you can read the church history books if you want on that. But among Protestants, the two main views are what you could call the real presence, that in this meal, when Christians partake of it, Jesus is not physically present here, but he is nonetheless truly present through the Holy Spirit in a way that is distinctive, in a way that is not promised in any other moment in life. What's often known as the Baptist view is the memorial view, and this is the fourth and final view, and, and the idea is that when we do this, we remember what Jesus has done. And the guys who hold like Calvin and, and guys in the Reformed tradition who hold to the real presence, they often kind of jokingly mock that the memorial view is the real absence view. That we remember that Jesus just isn't here. And so we remember that he was here, but he's not here anymore. I actually think that both of those last two views get at something right which is there absolutely is a sense in which when we partake of this, we remember what Jesus has done long ago. And we do remember he's not here right now in the sense that he was and in the sense that he will be when we sit with him in the kingdom of heaven and eat and drink. And so I would just say we need to affirm there is a real sense in which Jesus is absent and we are eating this in his absence. But there's also another sense in which through the spirit, he ascends to heaven, pours out the spirit, and now he's with us always. And so he's also present with us, that kind of already not yet dynamic that we'll talk about a little later. But one of the things 
that I encourage us to, to really treasure and value in this time is a lot of what we do in the rest of the service, and even just as a church, is one of two things, information impartation, which I love. I'm a teacher. I love giving you guys good information. But I can give you, put it this way, and some of you know enough about yourselves at this point, if you think discipleship is about the pastor or you or anybody else taking all the wrong ideas out of your head, putting all the right ideas in your head, and then boom, you're just following Jesus and everything's right, you will be profoundly disappointed at how the Christian life works. Your main problem in life is not information. Truth matters, doctrine matters, but it doesn't make anybody a follower of Jesus by itself. The other thing is think about like we get up and we stand, we sing, we confess our sins, we hang out afterwards. We do a lot of activities where we're active together, where we're doing good works, and that's important. But what this meal is about is encounter. What this meal is about is experience. It's actually about being in someone's presence and eating with them. If you have ever had to just eat by yourself at home or in the cafeteria versus you get together with a bunch of friends on Friday night, on Saturday night, those are two completely different experiences because you're with other people. And so when we do this, it is meant to be an encounter where we actually sit and eat and drink with our Lord Jesus and with each other. And so I'll mention this in just a moment. But one of the things I encourage you to do on a regular basis is to actually practice the presence of God in this moment, to actually remember that Jesus is with us through the spirit as we eat and drink this meal. Yes, we're remembering. Yes, we're looking ahead in hope, but we're also dining with him right now in receiving his grace and communing with him and enjoying him. And so with respect to presence, this is why we should rightly call this meal communion. This is communion. It is a form of God's presence with us, and it is one of the ways we should regularly experience God's presence. It is also provision. And if you read the Gospels, it's obvious that on the Last Supper, whatever else it was, it was kind of, a, um, kind of an adaptation of the Passover meal. Just as Israel regularly has this meal every year where they celebrate the fact that God delivered them out of Egypt and out of slavery, so Jesus takes the same elements and says, and it's interesting, I love this, it's not there in the Gospels, but I think it's implied, for thousands of years, even to today, in Judaism, when the Seder meal happens, when the Passover meal happens, the patriarch or whoever's leading stands up and starts it off by asking a question, why is this night different than all other nights? And Jesus, at that very moment, holds up the bread, unleavened bread, holds up the wine, and he says, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you. It's no longer about Jewish slaves coming out of Egypt. It's about, as Jesus says in John 6, for the life of the whole world, laying down his body and pouring out his blood for them. And so when you think about what are the great dangers in your life? There's a lot that you can mention. You can mention like, I'm really worried about where the economy is going. I'm really worried about like our culture and like all the infighting and all the lack of consensus and all the rage and all the division. You can say like, I'm worried about COVID-19. I'm worried that I'm gonna go to the doctor next year and I'm gonna get some awful news. I'm worried what might happen to my kids. I'm, I'm worried whether I'm ever gonna meet anybody and ever gonna get married. And those are all things to worry about. They're all real dangers in life. They're all real things that, that cause us to fret. But one thing the story of the wilderness reminds us is the great danger is turning away and grumbling and in unbelief and falling short of entering the promised land. And the great need is to persevere in faith and in hope and in love until the end. 
And if that is your main need in life, this is what you need. You need sustenance. The next time I, so often I end up working this in, the next time you read or you watch The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was a good Christian. He was a good Catholic. This is what the Lombus bread is in The Lord of the Rings. It's sustenance for the journey that keeps people going, not just physically, but it also when Sam, when Frodo, when anybody is tempted to despair, tempted to give in, they eat it and it just brings new hope. It brings new encouragement. It reminds them of the goodness of life. It reminds them of why they're journeying. This is provision for the journey, forgiveness, intimacy, hope. It reminds us that God loves us, that he's for us. And so we call it the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. It's where we sit down and he feeds us. It's where we sit down and he gives us what we need. And then finally, it's formation. That as we do this week after week, I would guess that, that if we could go around the room most of you, if you were super honest, would say, I would certainly say that a pretty big percentage of my week, Jesus's presence and love don't seem super real. They seem distant. They seem on the margins at best. We often doubt it, that it's difficult to maintain the liveliness of faith and of hope and of love. And as we do this, it brings right before our eyes who God is, who Jesus is. It reminds us it forms us. And so even in terms of this being the Eucharist, I would say we are all, I know you guys well enough, and I know fallen human beings, including myself well enough, you all, I'm betting, spent a lot of time this week grumbling. You all did. You all, and I did too. My wife, Helen, could tell you I'm a huge grumbler. We all spent a lot of time grumbling. Probably almost all of you grumbled more than you said thank you this past week. And that is a character flaw. It's not that there's nothing to complain about. It's not that we're always supposed to put on a happy face and always be yes, men. That's not what I'm saying. But in terms of being so much more prone to my needs aren't being met, I'm going to throw a hissy fit versus God's grace is everywhere. I am overflowing in gratitude. We all need to make huge gains in that direction. And this is a moment where we regularly step back and say, everything I could ever possibly need has already been given. Thank you. And doing that forms a person over the years and over the decades. And so here's a couple of things. I'm going to do this in two minutes, and then we're just going to partake of it. Here's a couple of things, and, and I'll, I'll write this up, and I'll send it out so you can have it there. Not all at once, but week after week, as we have an opportunity to do this, here are some suggestions, not at all exhaustive, of what you might do in a couple of minutes where you're sitting in Jesus' presence with each other, holding these elements and partaking of them, what are we doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper? First thing I'll mention is reflect during these moments on those four verbs. Jesus took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. And really think about what each of those four verbs says. He took, that Jesus took the initiative to move towards us. He didn't respond. He just, he took bread, then he blessed it. Whatever else this is meant, it is meant for our good, for our flourishing, for our world. This is blessing. He broke it. This was at great cost and sacrifice to Jesus. This is free, but it is not cheap. And so we remember and we experience how incredibly sacrificial and self-giving his love is. And he gave it, there's generosity there. There's not a sense of, oh, you awful, miserable sinners. Look what I had to do to save you. There's a sense of abundant generosity. When he does this, he gives it freely. Another thing you should regularly do 
is just remember, remember what this is based on. Remember that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for you. Remember that you were in great need and he laid down his life for you. Remember you were going to starve to death and he showed up last minute to save you. Remember that you were in the wilderness about to thirst to death and out of nowhere in a way that had nothing to do with your agency or your character, a miraculous provision arrived. Remember that that's what the universe is like. Another one is look forward to, with anticipation, the meal that this points to, that one day, if there's anything else meals are about in every culture, I was just reading this the other day, a great Eastern Orthodox theologian, that even in our secular culture, where many people no longer believe in God, there's still a sense that meals are sacred, or in some sense, kind of the point of everything else. When you sit down with your family or with your friends on Friday or Saturday, and you have a good meal, that is one of the few things in life that we do not for the sake of something else, but it's because this is what life is about. This is what life is about. Good food, good drink with the people we love and who love us. And a meal is coming in the kingdom of God in the future. And this is a little foretaste of that. And so let it kind of stir up your hope and your anticipation. I've already mentioned it, but actually settle down and just notice how much you've grumbled in the last six days and lean away from that and just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just let this be a moment of the Eucharist of saying, thank you. Absolutely. We do this already in our service, but this is a moment. That's a great moment to confess and to repent. I remember for me, I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but my mom became a Christian after I did. I became a Christian in college. She became a, a Christian a couple of years later. And I remember one of the moments when I just, my heart rejoiced and I just knew she got it is she just had this way of putting it. My mom was pretty in, 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 inimitable in the way that she would put things. She just said, whatever else the cross is about, Jesus isn't hanging up there because I'm okay and you're okay. That this is about, he was broken because we are broken. He was destroyed because we were going to perish otherwise, and we remember our dire straits. We confess how much we have ruined what God has wanted to do in our lives apart from his grace. You can ask the spirit to bring life to this. You can eat this. You can drink this over and over and over again. It's got no efficacy. It's got no power by itself. If the spirit turns it by faith into provision, then it gives life. And so ask the spirit to work. And um, last thing I'll mention is just, th there's a phrase that's often used today, even outside of Christian circles of kind of centering prayer or centering yourself. You're distracted, you're all over the place, you need to center yourself. This reminds us of what is central in our faith, that of first importance is Jesus's life and death and resurrection for what we need, for who God is, for the decisive turning point in history, probably most of us walked in here today with our anxieties stirred up by something that you read in the news this week. And I don't want to play down at all how significant the ups and downs of history are, but if you are a Christian, you should know the turning point of history already happened 2,000 years ago. The decisive move towards hope has already happened. If you are walking around being like, I'm hopeful because this happened politically and I was hoping that would happen and now I'm despairing because that happened and I don't like that one, you are centering on the wrong things. This is the center, central moment of history. This is the central moment of God acting. And so in your bulletin at the very beginning, let me end by reading this and then we're gonna pass these elements out and give you about five minutes to just sit and to reflect and to respond. Look at that last quote from Rowan Williams uh, Rowan Williams was the arch, 
Bishop of Canterbury. It's the highest role in the Anglican church in the world. Um, probably 10 or 15 years ago, he's a brilliant theologian. And this is my all-time favorite quote about the Lord's table. And let's go into it thinking about this. Rowan Williams says, for Christians to share in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion means to live as people who know that they are always guests, that they have been welcomed and that they are wanted. It is perhaps the most simple thing that we can say about Holy Communion, yet it is still supremely worth saying. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. Now that is amazing news. But then he goes on and he says, celebrating the Eucharist not only reminds us that we are invited to be guests, it also reminds us that we are given the freedom to invite others to be guests as well. We have experienced the hospitality of God in Christ. Our lives are therefore set free to be hospitable to others. One of the most transformingly surprising things about Holy Communion is that it obliges you to see the person sitting next to you as wanted by God. God wants that person's company as well as mine. How much simpler it would be if God only wanted my company and that of those I had decided to invite? People who vote like me, people who resonate with the same issues, people who like doing the same things as me. But God does not play that particular game. And the transforming effect of looking at other Christians around you as people whose company God also wants is, by the look of things, still sinking in for a lot of Christians and taking rather a long time. Holy communion changes the way we see things. One of the gifts we receive at Holy Communion is that gift of new vision, a gift of seeing things. We have to dare to say it just for a moment from God's perspective. And I love that, that on the one hand, we are invited, welcomed, and even wanted. And on the other hand, and, and this is the, the last thing I'll say as we pass it out, is everything that I told you, which I think is true, is all kind of your vertical relationship with God. One last thing you can do from time to time, and don't do it in a weird way. You guys all have good EQ. I know you won't do it in a weird way, but every once in a while, while you're holding the wafer, the lambus bread, and you're holding the, the, the wine, is you should look around you and remember, this is a family meal. And these people around me are also wanted by Jesus, not just me. And by taking this, I am bounding myself to them as well. I cannot take this here and refuse this. That the same welcome that has, has me sitting at this table has also invited all of them to sit at the table. And so remember that this is a family meal.